Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. King Charles will face protests at his coronation. Megan's Spotify podcast returns. And we talk a little bit more about royal biographies. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's chief royal correspondent. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, a royal watcher based in the U.S. And this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. And hello to Graham Smith, chief executive of Republic. Republic is an organization that campaigns to abolish the monarchy. And we are so happy to have you here with us today, Graham. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, Graham, we have you here today because you are planning protests to coincide with the coronation of King Charles III. Um, that's going to be in May next year. Tell us why. Well, I mean, you know, there is no need for a coronation. Um, there is, uh, it's obviously going to be a huge expense. But the main reason is simply that we want to see the monarchy abolished and big royal events are a good opportunity to make that point. Um, and particularly at a coronation. You know, over the last, since 2011, we've had two weddings, two jubilees, and uh, the accession of Charles and the funeral and so on. Um, on all of these occasions, our numbers have gone up. Um, on all of these occasions, we get a lot more uh, media interest. We see some uh, sort of enga- more engagement with the public. Um, but the, the thing about the coronation is that this, is, this isn't a birthday, it's not a wedding, it's not a, a, an anniversary. It is just raw PR, really. I mean, there's, it's, uh, it is just a big moment for the palace to say, look, you know, here we are. You know, isn't it all wonderful? Don't we all love it? Um, and isn't it great that we've got this new king? You know, there's no, as I said, there's no purpose for it. We don't need to have it. Um, so it should be facing protests. And I would I would hope it would not just face anti-monarchy protests, but also other protests, because, you know, this represents a... Um, a big slap in the face for a lot of people in terms of, you know, the cuts and the um, the financial stresses the country and, and communities are going through. Um, and, you know, we'll see uh, how that plays out. But, um, yeah, I think this will be quite a big protest. We would be remiss not to point out, though, that protesters have not been treated particularly well by the firm in recent weeks. Um, a number of anti-monarchy demonstrators have been mm. arrested at events surrounding the Queen's funeral and the proclamations of Charles' accession. What are your thoughts on how the current sovereign is dealing with protesters? And do you have a plan in place for your protests that are going to be taking place? I mean, it's the police that, um, I mean, the police have a very questionable relationship with the royals, but um, the police have uh, hugely overstepped the mark. And it was interesting that even monarchists uh, were criticising them for those arrests. And the Metropolitan Police Commission, um, who's fairly new to the job, has said, um, you know, the protests should be allowed. However, you know, we've had various comments from the Metropolitan Police over the years um, sort of you know suggesting that uh they may not 
be that tolerant of these things. Um, so the first thing I'm going to be doing uh, probably the next week or the week after is writing to all of the police uh, chief um, constables and the Metropolitan Police Commissioner in London, asking them to clarify their position and to reassure us that they're going to allow protests to go ahead because there's absolutely no legal justification for stopping them. There's certainly no moral justification for stopping them. Um, and regardless of their answer, we're going to organise protest. So, um, you know, the question is, do they want people being arrested and bundled into vans in, on the coronation day, or do they want to be seen to be people who are um, allowing peaceful protests to go ahead? And do you have a viewpoint on your location for your protest? Because obviously sometimes these things come down to negotiation with the police and they say things along the lines that the protest can go ahead, but not where you want it. Instead of being, you know, by the Abbey, we'll put you two miles down the road where no one's going to see you. Will, if, the, if you get into a situation like that with the police, will you push back? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's not a protest against the coronation if it's two miles away. And um, our position is that it needs to be uh, fairly close to the Abbey, probably in Parliament Square. Um, and obviously we don't know, the, you know, I assume there's going to be some kind of procession route and so on. Um, you know, we've had this sort of conversation before with the police. We had a protest, several hundred people down at the um, pageant in 2012 uh, for the Queen's Jubilee. And the police are fairly um, uh, amenable to that. Uh, we've had protests outside Buckingham Palace on a number of occasions. Now, it's, it's technically not allowed. But protests are just generally banned outside Buckingham Palace um, by the uh, Royal Parks. And now we've spoken to the Royal Parks and they've said exactly that. They said, well, uh, it's quite some time ago. They said, uh, you can protest, but it has to be you know, down the other end of the mall, which is about a mile away. Um, and we said, well, that's obviously not going to happen. Uh, we want to protest outside Buckingham Palace. So we spoke to the police and said, we're going to protest outside Buckingham Palace. They said, have you asked permission? And we said, yes. And they said, no. And so we're going to do it anyway. And the police turned up and just sort of stood and watched. Um, so, you know, it, it very much depends on who you're dealing with. But if you can negotiate with them and discuss it with them, then they can be quite amenable. Now, we're talking a lot about the police here, but Jack and I were just saying in a recent episode of the show that we do think it's on the sovereign to a certain extent to maybe speak out on behalf of uh, free speech, uh, public mm. protests, and so on. Uh, and, and what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel that Charles has the responsibility to speak on behalf of these kinds of human rights, these kinds of factors that just are a part of a democracy? Yeah, I think it reflects very badly on him that he hasn't said anything about these arrests. I mean, people being arrested at his accession events, um, uh, causing a lot of anxiety and stress about you know where people what people are allowed to do i mean you know one of these was uh simon hill in oxford i mean he he was just walking past and shouted who elected him i mean that is not even i mean it's barely a protest and he gets arrested um so it was pretty shocking in that sense and for charles to say nothing i think is pretty shocking as well not surprising um i don't think he's remotely concerned about these sorts of issues i don't suppose he gives them a second thought um, but I, I do think it again speaks volumes about his uh, his character and his um, his priorities. 
Now, going back to the coronation just briefly, obviously the counter-argument to the one that you've put forward to us today is that these big set-piece royal events bring everybody together. The royals aren't controversial like politicians are, like a democratically elected head of state would be, and this is a means that Britain can come together and celebrate together and feel unity and harmony. What's your perspective on that? The evidence doesn't support any of that. Uh, You know, I don't think it's possible to say the royals are not controversial. They're very controversial, uh, Andrew being the standout example of that. Um, But the fact that Charles is essentially protecting Andrew, as the Queen did before, um, is controversial. There's plenty of controversy around the lobbying. uh, And, of course, there's controversy about them being royals. I mean, you know, increasingly... Opinion, opinion is quite divided over this. In terms of the country coming together, it, this is one thing that, you know, we're going to be pushing back on national broadcasters over about the way they portray this. You know, it was not a country in mourning a few weeks ago. It was not a country celebrating the Jubilee a few months ago. It was, you know, this is a minority interest. The polling we did around the time of the Jubilee showed 14% um, who were uh, keen to do something on the weekend of the Jubilee. Um, the vast majority of people were doing nothing and just getting on with their life. When the Queen died, obviously that's quite a big moment, and people were interested and in, and in, you know reflecting that for the first sort of couple of days. And even royalists by the Monday, um, you know, three or four days afterwards, were saying, "Well, okay, we've done that. Can we get back to the real news?" And it just dragged on and on and on. Um, and the same with the queue, uh, you know, which was entirely manufactured cue completely unnecessary um but uh it was you're speaking of the cue to see the queen the queen the cue to see the queen's uh coffin lying in state yeah i mean there was no people were commenting saying you know in this day and age you can do a ticketing system and turn up when when you're when you get an alert on your phone just the idea of having to queue is a nonsense and you know, they were speculating, I think, four miles of queue, and it turned out, I think it was one mile or two miles or whatever it was. But, I mean, it, it's, was it a quarter of a million people? I mean, that sounds a lot, but it's not really. country of 65 million people, a city of nine million people. Um, but it still is a, and as we've, you know, there's some very interesting articles by psychologists talking about why people were there, and it certainly wasn't, you know, quarter of a million people desperate to pay uh, tribute to the Queen. Um so, yeah, it's a minority interest, um, and it needs to be treated as such. You know, this is, a, this is not a national event, it's a royal event, and it's of interest to royalists, um, and, uh, and that's it, really, um, and it needs to be dealt with in that way. But, Graham, despite the fact that maybe not everybody wants to go to these big royal events, a very recent survey by the National Center for Social Research found that 55% of the population in the UK either believes the monarchy is very or quite important currently. So what do you say about that? I think it needs to be um, broken down as to why people think that, what they mean by that, um, what the pollster means by that. I don't know that it really tells us an awful lot. Um, it, you know, given There are three things that people believe quite widely um about the monarchy which is that um it's you know it's harmless it's just a figurehead they believe that it's good for the economy and they believe that it unites the country because which is another way of saying everybody else uh likes it so you know i'm not going to argue with none of those are true as i've said about the polling it's very uh much more complicated picture the economic benefit is 
complete nonsense um, and it's you know far from harmless but you don't really get much of this debate so people are left believing these things um, and therefore you know it's only 55 percent I say well why, why is it as low as 55 percent given the incredibly poor level of um, serious debate on the issue um, but when you ask people do you think we should get rid of it I mean recent polls there's been a bit of a um, sort of accession bounce but um, you know back in July polling has dropped from 75% to 60% in favour up from 20 roughly 20% to around 27% against you know and and in certain demographics the numbers have dropped far far uh, further so I just don't think that poll really tells us an awful lot without getting into what people mean and, and what the importance is that they think it has. Now, let's talk about Charles specifically, because obviously you've been preparing for the reign of Charles III for quite a long time. Um, I seem to remember you've, you know, you've had kind of ideas for advertising campaigns and um, all kinds of stuff like that built around Charles. <clears throat> and we've all anticipated th- this particular succession being a bit of a bumpy ride. Um, but some of the earliest polling showed a roughly 30 point swing in Charles's favour. Do you think that that's a honeymoon period? Or do you think that Charles's succession is going to be smoother than we all expected? Where, where do you stand on that? Well, I think that the it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, I think it's clearly there was going to be a bounce. You know, we had saturation coverage of the the morning, you know, the sun in morning, um, grieving the loss of his mother and all the rest of it going around uh, doing all these succession things. Um, but it puts him, the poll in the eye, I think it was something like 60% um, or thereabouts, was a bit higher maybe, um, saying that you'd be a good king, which is a good 20% below his mother. Um, and... A good twenty percent below uh, the polling for a lot of elected heads of state, um, and that's probably you know I I would say it's probably the high point of his uh, popularity. I might be wrong, but we'll see. But I think that I think that royalists who think that the monarchy is now secure are kidding themselves because the the person that kept it secure for so long was the queen, and I don't think they've necessarily factored in. I don't think that perhaps. I don't know that it's necessarily sunk in the difference that it makes to have Charles instead of the Queen. The difference is enormous because the the things that you can say about Charles, if you said it about the Queen, you would get shouted down. You know, you, your name would be in the papers as some hate figure and uh, the, the discussion would be closed down. You know, Charles, I can quite clearly you know, say what I like about him. We had billboards up last year calling him a climate change hypocrite. No, if we did that with the Queen, um, I think we would have had a much, much uh, stronger reaction. So we effectively have gone from having this sort of semi, uh, slightly sort of deified figure to just a bloke in a suit who you can say what you like about and, um, and who has huge amounts of baggage um, and, you know, a large cupboard full of skeletons and stories and history that that can be raked over and people are very happy to rake over so and i think that maybe hasn't sunk in for people that think the monarchy is safe yeah and not just past baggage we have current things happening too we have you know inheritance tax as you said you know the protection of andrew and so on but we also have the bigger question beyond you know the palace of the commonwealth realms the caribbean countries and so on do you think they also are going to be out there protesting on Coronation Day to remove Charles as head of state? So, um, yeah, this weekend we've got a, uh, 
conference. We've got someone from Jamaica speaking um, at that conference about what's going on there. So we're going to be finding out more about um, what's happening in the Caribbean. But I mean, since their disastrous tours uh, at the start of the year with William and Kate and then Edward and Sophie, most of the Caribbean uh, realms have said that they're going to ditch the monarchy. They've sort of confirmed that. I think one of them, I forget which one it was, confirmed it again during the morning period, which is interesting. And you know, Australia is going to go down that road, and it's just a matter of time. They said it'll be in the next term, but parliamentary terms in Australia are maximum three years, so we're looking at probably five years away. All of these countries going down that road will keep on bringing this debate up and doing us a big favour by showing us what the alternative looks like, which is, you know, the big, that's the big sort of uh, challenge for any campaign is get people to imagine what the what things look like after you've achieved your uh your aim and if we can get people to see that in particularly in Australia which will have a much more profound impact I think than Caribbean countries then um then that'll make a big difference so yeah I think that um there's I, I mean it's not just the Caribbean countries and the and the Commonwealth countries because I mean we're a member of the Alliance of European Republican Movements and we're talking to people in Netherlands for example one of them is speaking at our conference um, support for the monarchy there has dropped over the last 10 years from around 80 percent to 50 percent um, which is a massive drop and they've got an 18-year-old uh, princess who is first in line to the throne. Uh, and there is no majority in favour of her succeeding her father. So, you know, that is a huge change there. And I think it's just, there, there are big sort of cultural and social changes across the globe um, that I think are starting to leave the monarchy stranded and looking increasingly out of place. And you talk about social changes there. So obviously Charles is a man um, and William is a is another white man and yep. Prince George is another white man. And I think we've spoken before about the the fact that this is not very, you know, it's a very difficult period to have, a, to have you know, what, 60 plus years of straight white men in the, in the top job. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would be right the way through to the next century if George lives um, as long as his mother. And I mean, you know, people that age, he's, what is he, eight or nine? Uh, are predicted to live quite a bit longer. So, I mean, we're, it could easily be, you know, 100 years, 95 years into the future that we have these three uh, men. Um, and I th- I mean, even now, if you look, they had this photo the other day that they released of William and uh, Kate with Charles and Camilla saying, you know, this is kind of the new monarchy. I mean, there's nothing new about it, really, but it just looked stripped down to rather... Uh, to to two rather dull people and their wives. Um, and I say and their wives, I mean, obviously they're all part of it, but I mean, it, it's the two princes that are the principal uh, people there. And it's completely uninspiring, you know. And I, I think that um, the Queen had some kind of, you know, she she looked the part. She looked like she's out of a movie about a royal family. You know, she looked like she was out of that sort of pre-war era and from an era that most of us can't remember and she was um you know it didn't look out of place with the gold carriages and the you know the the crown and the the dresses and all the rest of it it looked you know that was the monarchy for most people i think that increasingly we're going to see um basically these two other dull men in suits uh demanding tax breaks and secrecy and you know this that and the other um and I think increasingly people are just going to go, well, you know, what's the point? You know, why are we putting up with these people? And Graham, just one last question. 
if you succeed and other Republicans succeed in abolishing the monarchy, what does the future look like for Britain? Well, it's quite simple, really. You really have to look around Europe and you see parliamentary democracies with elected heads of state who have very limited constitutional roles. Um, and, you know, Ireland being the, the nearest and one of the best examples. And they have elected over the last 30 years three excellent heads of state um, who are usually popular and who have poll ratings far higher than Charles. Um, but, you know, Finland, Austria, Iceland, you know, they all have these sorts of systems. It's quite common. So essentially, to boil it down, we have what we have now, but we make it democratic. So fully elected parliament, both houses of parliament elected um, and still have the prime minister in the commons. Um, and you uh, you elect someone to play the role that is played by the monarch, but they are independent. And therefore, when it comes to constitutional issues, they don't seem to take instructions from the prime minister, but they can use uh, an independent judgment. But they're not taking political decisions. No, they're just taking, uh, they're guarding the constitution and making sure that things work. And I think the last few years has demonstrated more than anything uh, with the Johnson government and uh, to some extent this government, that the constitution is uh, pretty poor. Um, it needs to be improved. And then there needs to be someone who is independent of the government to uh, to take some action. Um, and then we saw with the Queen, she was only ever going to do what the Prime Minister told her to do. That's her job, as far as she's concerned, um, makes it slightly pointless her being there. So um, what's interesting about that, though, is that both William and Charles, as I understand it, have indicated they might try and change the role slightly. Um, and I think that's dangerous for them um, and bad for us. And I think it you know, only adds to the urgency of getting rid of it before they do some real damage. Graham, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Reminder, Graham Smith is chief executive of Republic. Republic is an organization that campaigns to abolish the monarchy. Okay, we are going to take a quick break. But before we do, a reminder to raters and reviewers on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your favorite shows. And when we're back, we are talking about Megan's podcast, Archetypes, which is back after a break. And we're going to talk all about it. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery 
starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hi, everyone. We're back, and so is Archetypes, which was on a brief hiatus during the official mourning period for the Queen. That's right. And as usual, Megan is joined in each of her episodes by high-profile guests as they unpack the labels that are used to limit and stereotype women. In her October 4th episode called The Demystification of Dragon Lady, she talks with Margaret Cho and Lisa Ling about the stereotypes Asian American women face. And in her October 11th episode called The Decoding of Crazy, she talks with Deepika Pudikon, Jenny Slate, and Constance Wu about mental health. Yes, now there has been plenty of buzz about both these episodes, but the most recent is this one, The Decoding of Crazy, and it is a heavy-hitting episode. Megan says so at the start of it. It deals with some really difficult subject matter. Uh, it was released to coincide with World Mental Health Day, which was the day before, um, and it does get into some particularly sensitive subject matter. Constance Wu talks, for example, about a suicide attempt. So if you are going to watch it, just know what you're getting into um it's yeah it's full on but do you know what there's some really interesting discussion there too yeah and megan herself talks about obviously her own struggles with mental health but about how she turned to prince harry to really get the help she needed and how he at one point referred her to a mental health professional when she was at her rock bottom what she called her worst point and megan you know just cold called this mental health professional who was grocery shopping at the time. And um, in the episode, you can hear the like beeps of this person checking out her groceries at, at the grocery store and so on. And kind of, you know, giving us a sense of what rock bottom felt like for Megan and desperately calling somebody she had no idea about, but just that Harry had picked out for her to talk with. And one thing that's interesting about it is that Megan does say that she had at least some of these labels attached to her too. So she mentions crazy, hysterical, insane, out of control. Uh, she mentions a few of them. She doesn't identify a specific one, but she she says, you know, if she was to ask people in a room, put your hands up if this has happened to you, she would have her hand up too. Um, she obviously talks. So that discussion about her about rock bottom for her and Harry putting her in touch with, uh, with somebody he knew, that obviously relates to her time within the royal family. Um, so we have this kind of chime back in with everything Meghan discussed in her interview with Oprah Winfrey and how difficult things got for her there. But she obviously, I'm sure, would have been hugely conscious about what would have happened if she'd made that, this particular episode about the palace. And so we don't have the palace actually mentioned front and centre within this discussion. No, but there is a little hint that she is talking about the tabloids to a certain extent, that they are among those who put these labels on her. At one point, she is talking with her friend, the former Surgeon General of California, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. And uh, it's brought up that at one point, Dr. Burke-Harris gave Megan a gift, which was made out of 
shredded tabloids because that's all that tabloids are good for, are to be shredded and either used as stuffing and other things or used as packing materials. So uh, I, I did feel like that was a not very subtle hint at, um, yeah, the tabloids were among those who were the perpetrators here. And I did actually have to check, and you will, I'm sure, be amused to discover that actually this is another Tom Bauer situation because he, so Tom Bauer is a biographer who wrote a book about Megan called Revenge. It was very, very negative. All his books are about everybody he's ever written about. But um, he, yeah, so he is the author of the phrase directed at Megan that she was a brazen hussy giving rise to a thousand uh, Sussex Squad Twitter accounts with the same name. Um, and yeah, so he did actually describe her as uh, being hysterical in his book, um, in a particular section of it that was about the, you might remember the Vanity Fair cover story, um, supposedly Buckingham Palace. Wild very, about Harry. Yep. Wild about Harry. Yeah. Buckingham Palace supposedly got very angry about it. And then he describes Megan as reacting hysterically and calling her PR people. So that was a, that was a particular usage of that specific word attached to Megan that I was able to find. And obviously it feels like some of Megan's previous episodes were making kind of implicit reference to Bauer as well. I think the stuff about ambition in her very first episode felt like it was a little like you know subtle dig at Bauer yeah yeah some other things that Megan talks about in the episode her desire or the way she was raised the expectation put on her to maintain her composure and how she looks at her children and how they just cry and let it out you know Archie and Lilibet if they're having a hard time with things they just cry and cry and and, and then they feel better immediately afterward. And Megan says, oh, I wish I could cry like that. I wish I could cry like an Adele song. And um, I, I, I think that um, that was a great little Megan moment in the episode. Uh, it, it speaks a lot to what she has to do as a public figure to hold it together and how, you know, sometimes the children, we should follow the children, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, I was also, I thought it was some of the way that she worded things and the way she phrased things really actually reminded me quite strongly of the way that Princess Diana described her experiences and particularly around mental health. And I just want to read two sections, one from Megan and one from Diana, just to compare them because I think it's quite stark. So Megan talks about how branding somebody as crazy or hysterical dismisses their emotional experiences of the world. And she says it minimizes what they're feeling. And, you know, it doesn't stop there. It keeps going to the point where anyone who's been labelled enough times can be gaslit into thinking that they're actually unwell or something worse to the point where real issues of all kinds get ignored. So um, Diana, in her 1995 uh, interview with the BBC with Panorama, um, said this. Uh, she talks. She's talking about the impact that her depression had on her standing. And she says, well, it gave everybody a wonderful new label. Diana's unstable. Diana's mentally unbalanced. And unfortunately, that seems to have stuck on and off over the years. So it really feels to me that the like it, uh, Megan doesn't make this connection, but the content and the subject matter of this particular episode is very relevant in terms of uh, Diana's experiences and the way that she was discussed in the 1990s. Yeah. And that label has followed Diana, you know, beyond the grave. A lot of people still depict her that way as kind of unhinged and not completely holding it together. And uh, we saw some of that in the film Spencer last year, starring Kristen Stewart. You know, how much is in her head? How much is real? Is she paranoid or is the paranoia justified and so on? And so that 
reputation has has followed her. And it certainly is something that Megan has grappled with as well. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Um, it is indeed. And of course, we'll have the next series of The Crown coming out next month in November, which will bring Diana's experiences back to the surface again. So um, people will be watching the, this particular period of Diana's life play out in front of them. So the previous series of The Crown dealt with a lot of Diana's private experiences within the palace, but during an era where they hadn't become public yet. The next series of, Crown, of The Crown is going to take on the 1990s, so it will have the bombshell biography in 1992 by Andrew Morton, which made Charles's affair of Camilla public for the first time and all of the kind of unravelling that followed. The unravelling both of the marriage itself but also uh, of the way that Princess Diana was depicted as unravelling with her mental health. So it's all going to be out there next month in November um, and this episode from Megan perhaps sets a bit of a tone to precede it. And we all know who's going to be throwing his slippers at the television set when that season airs. <laughs> In our last episode, we were talking about how Charles supposedly hates how sympathetic the crown is to Princess Di. So, uh, yes, I, I, I'm, I'm imagining more slippers will be thrown at the TV or pens, possibly. We'll see. It's really interesting that they always release it in November because it's the month of Charles's birthday. So it's like this is Netflix's <laughs> weird birthday present to Charles every year. I just love how not subtle that is. Oh, speaking of birthdays, one thing we didn't mention when we were talking to Graham, the coronation of Charles, now King Charles, it is actually happening on the same day as Archie's birthday. Archie is turning four on coronation day. So yes, I don't yeah. know. I, I, I don't know if that's an accident or not. I don't feel like it is. I don't feel like any of these things are ever accidents. <laughs> well, one thing that was interesting, I saw it said that they were trying to make sure they avoided other big dates like Eurovision and stuff like that. But honestly, <laughs> like from the public's <laughs> point of view, this is they've now landed it on this really glaring, yeah, this really glaring double booking, which it, it's kind of us, like, I suppose, how much Harry and Meghan care partly depends on whether they intend to come to Britain for the coronation. But four, he's going to be four in May, um, May 6th it is. And obviously that is uh, like it's old enough to kind of have a sense of your birthday, maybe even remember last year's mm -hmm. birthday, have an idea in your mind of specific friends from preschool who you want to come to your birthday. So it is definitely, you know, it's getting to the age where it's going gonna, it's gonna to be meaningful for Archie. I mean, I guess they could just hold it. So this is a, the date is a Saturday. So I guess they could just hold it the Saturday before. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this will have definitely like raised some eyebrows in uh, in Montecito. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Speaking of double bookings, we also have to point out to get back to Megan's podcast here. On the same day her episode dropped about mental health, Prince William and Kate talked to the BBC as part of World Mental Health Day um, about the importance of mental health, and uh, I just. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like Megan did it better. I know it's not a contest, but <laughs> she just not gets more personal. It feels less like a PSA and it feels more like a story, the way Megan and her guests talk about things, if that makes sense. Yeah, so Megan uh, and, uh, yeah, as you say, and her guests definitely really dived into it. And, um, yeah, listening to Constance Wu talk about her experience oh, as well, that was really upsetting. So, yeah, so, she, I mean... 
obviously we're yeah so to get into some of the really difficult subject matter she talks about how somebody uh sent her a dm uh basically saying that she'd let i think let down her race i think was the specific phrase which is obviously like a such a cutting thing for a person to have to read um and yeah that was the moment that triggered her so yeah really really moving profoundly moving stuff yeah and she actually cries throughout this constant well you can tell still feels all of this very very deeply Mm. she she lets all of her emotions come to the surface while she's talking about it. Or maybe she doesn't let them. Maybe she has no choice. They just come out, those emotions do. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see how to suddenly be back talking about such a personal experience and personal personal moment, it would be hard to stop it from coming out, wouldn't it? Um, and this is obviously the point at which they go on to this thing that Megan said about, you know, wanting to just like cry hysterically like her children and then feel fine afterwards um, was because, you know, Constance was, I think, almost kind of like apologizing for having cried, which obviously Megan said she didn't need to do. Yeah, it's a powerful episode. It's a very, very powerful episode. (sighs) And Jack, now let's take one more quick break. But before we do, a reminder to all of you out there to follow us on Twitter. Jack is at Jack underscore Royston. And I am at Kristen Meinzer. We always have the latest royal updates there. In my case, a lot of royal opinions. (laughs) And of course, Jack's latest stories for Newsweek. When we're back a little bit more about royal biographies. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, everyone. We are back with one last story. As you may recall, in our last episode, we discussed the new biography Courtiers by Valentine Lowe. Reminder, he's also a royal correspondent for The Times and the reporter who broke the story about bullying allegations against Meghan. Since then, Jack, you have had a chat with him. You always have the inside scoop. What did you and Valentine Lowe talk about? Tell me it all. 
So actually, I took the opportunity to put to Val some of the points that you have been bringing up on this very show about yes. Megan and the bullying allegations and how it all came out and all of that. And interestingly, obviously, you have defended Megan very uh, articulately on this show. Um, and Val's responses were interesting. So he pushed back, obviously, on some things. And he actually did agree with you on some things, too. Um, Do yeah. tell. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, let's start with something he pushed back on. So, he says that it was not cynical that the allegations leaked at the time they did immediately before the Oprah Winfrey interview. He said that the people who, uh, who his sources, the people who wanted to get that story out, basically knew that nobody would care what they had to say once Oprah came out. Anything that they might say of their side of the story would be sour, seen as sour grapes. Um, it wouldn't make you know it wouldn't make a dent, and that you know basically if Megan has the right to tell her side of the story, then they have the right to tell theirs. But they didn't tell their side of the story. They just called her names. Oh, she's really mean. She's really driven. She's really like they didn't actually ever say what she did. So I don't think those were accusations. But did Valentine talk about that at all? Actually, he did. And this comes towards something that, yeah, so this comes towards one of the points that he actually agreed with you on, which was he, so he says that these people were expressing the way that they felt. And, you know, clearly he believes that this is their sincere, uh, you know, emotional experience of what it was like to work for Megan. That, you know, he talks about how people shaking and feeling dread and, you know, knowing that they had to have a difficult conversation with her. But I said to him, um, it's a point that you've made before, which is that if this were to go to a disciplinary tribunal, it's very important just to stress that it never did. There was never an actual disciplinary investigation, nor any kind of ruling of that kind. But if it were, then none of the allegations that have been published in the media um, would be strong enough to be upheld because they all relate to the way that people felt. Um, and are, or name-calling, not- as I said. <laughs> <laughs> They're calling Megan a name. They're not saying Megan called them names, but... They're like, oh, she had me shaking in my boots. She's scary. And it's like, what do you mean by that? What does that mean? Yeah. So continue. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. So Val said, you know, that he agreed and that um, it might well not be upheld. But he does, of course, stress that he has never said that, you know, Megan would be found guilty of bullying at tribunal or, you know, within a tribunal, within an internal disciplinary investigation or disciplinary process. But he, you know, he, and he clearly, like I said, he clearly does believe these people are, um, are articulating their, you know, honest experience, emotional experiences of what it was like to work for her. Um, I mean, one of the things that was really interesting for me as well is just what role that this whole saga played internally within um, within Kensington Palace at the time. And this was one of the things I asked Val about, which is that, <clears throat> so I went back to the Oprah interview and what Harry said there about how things unraveled. And Harry said that everything, you know, that uh, he's, he names Charles, William and Kate and says that they were all really welcoming of Meghan, but it all changed after this tour of Australia and the South Pacific in October 2018. And after that point, everything was different. But uh, but he doesn't actually say anything that those three named royals did in the months that followed that represented any kind of change in their reception of Meghan or relationship with Meghan. The next thing that we hear of an actual royal family member doing wrong 
is all the way over at the tail end of 2019 when they're in Canada for Thanksgiving and they're trying to negotiate their and Christmas and they're trying to negotiate their way out the royal family. Now that going back to that tour, that's what Harry identified as the turning point. That was the tour where the staff said everything disintegrated and Meghan was being horrible to them. And then when they got back, that was when Jason Knopf, Kensington Palace Communications Secretary, sent the famous email accusing Meghan of being a bully. Um, but then the following month in November was the date of the uh, allegation that Meghan made Kate cry coming out in the press. So you then have you have leaks to the media and that followed by Meghan asking Kensington Palace Communications Office to correct it and them refusing. So I said to Val, like, is this two separate stories or is this one single story? Like, what is actually going on here? There are questions. I have big questions about this, which Val obviously, like, you know, can't answer all of my questions because no one can. Only Harry and Meghan and, you know, the other royals could answer (laughs) answer these questions. But he said he felt that there were linking threads between these two parallel narratives. But, like, my big question here is clearly Harry is suggesting that there was there is more to that story than he said because he talked about family members being receptive of Megan and then gave no further details. Ooh, but Valentine does not know everything. Just- Nor sadly do we, although we know enough for people to keep listening to our podcasts. So um, <laughs> <laughs> we know loads. Come on. We know it all. No, we don't. <laughs> we don't, but we discuss it in detail. <laughs> well, that sounds like a very illuminating conversation. Was there anything else that we should know about? Any any secrets or insights that he has to share? So, and this is obviously uh, more kind of analytical, but so there was this big issue with Megan wanting Kensington Palace communications team to correct this story suggesting that she'd made Kate cry. And so I said to Val, you know, <clears throat> should they have done that, basically? And his position is that no royal press office would ever have done that, um, in part because it's really dangerous territory to get involved in a dispute between two members of the royal family. Obviously, listeners may remember that there was genuinely an argument between Megan and Kate at the bridesmaid's dress fitting days before the wedding. Um, the story came out uh, first first published in the Telegraph in Britain and later in the Sun that um, Megan had made Kate cry. Megan then told Oprah that in fact she was the one who had cried and that Kate hadn't. So what uh, what Val said was basically this is just territory that palace comms should not be going into on any level because it's it relates to two members of the royal family who clearly had had a disagreement. Um, and uh, he also said it would it would have caused it would have turned what he saw as a one day story into a three day story. In other words, it would just have kept the snowball rolling and made it bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but which I think is an interesting point. I suppose from Megan's point of view, this felt like the biggest thing because she described their story as the turning point after which there was an onslaught of media negativity about her. So she, from in her mind, even though there weren't actual follow-up stories being written about the bridesmaid's dress fitting, she probably felt that the other hostile coverage she was then getting throughout 2019 were kind of follow-up chapters in the same book that had as its first chapter this story about the bridesmaid's dress fitting. Yeah, I mean, my take on that is, the story would not have had to have been fully corrected, but it could have just had a pushback along the lines of this is completely false. And that could have been enough. Like, this is a completely false story. This is not true. 
Although I guess they couldn't say that they wouldn't have been able to say it was completely false because the event took place. But they, I guess they could have tried to finesse the wording in relation to the element that was about the tears. That's because, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, that's what you're saying. Yeah. And so actually the one thing that Val did say was that perhaps they should have given what's known as guidance, guidances for um, those who don't work in the media when uh, a communications team or a press officer basically calls up journalists in an informal capacity and says look uh, we're not saying anything on the record about this but just for your benefits um, I'd steer clear of it if I was you Um, Mm. so he said perhaps they could have just like gently guided off the record not to follow up Um, which you know it's still I suppose an open question you know because what Megan was worried about was not only that story itself but the way that she felt that that started the firing gun on um on a like a, a much more wide-ranging assault on her character that didn't all relate to this instance. So I, su- I suppose if it hadn't been followed up in other news organizations, would that still have happened? It's difficult to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing to think through, I suppose. Wow. It sounds like a very illuminating conversation. And for all the folks out there listening, it is captured in a full written piece by Jack currently in Newsweek. So be sure to check out that conversation that Jack had with Valentine Lowe with all of the deeds. And that's it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join us every other week when we visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jack Royston. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And a curtsy to you all. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.